Welcome to Lighting Your Way, a podcast featuring exciting, hilarious, heartbreaking, terrifying, and joyful stories of real nurse advocates helping real patients get the best health care. Hi, I'm Nurse Betty Long. Each week, I and one of my nurse colleagues at Guardian Nurses will take you behind the curtain to help you better navigate the healthcare system when you or a loved one is sick or injured. On today's episode, we talk with Janine Fitzmaurice, who is one of Guardian Nurses' complex care nurses, supports patients with complex chronic diseases like COPD, diabetes, MS, or heart failure. We invited Janine on this episode to talk about advanced directives. The formal definition of an advanced directive is a written statement of a person's wishes regarding medical treatment, often including a living will, made to ensure those wishes are carried out should the person be unable to communicate them to a doctor. Examples of an advanced directive include a living will or a durable power of attorney for healthcare. Janine will share a story that will get you thinking, and if you haven't already, move you toward creating them for yourself. Welcome, Janine Fitzmaurice, to the Lighting Your Way podcast. It is wonderful to be talking with you today about such an important topic. Thanks, Betty. It's good to be here. And yes, I wholeheartedly agree that advanced directives are a very important topic for sure. And I think the story I'll share will hit home with a lot of our listeners. Great. Perfect. Uh, Our whole point, after all, for this podcast is to share our nurses' stories so that not only do we highlight the important work you and your teammates are doing, but we want to educate and empower our listeners so that they can be better healthcare consumers. Maybe someday folks won't need guardian nurses. Well, I'm not sure that will ever happen, but hey, a girl can dream. (laughs) You know, prior to coming to guardian nurses, I wouldn't have believed that the healthcare system was so fragmented, but even after being here for just a year, I have an entirely different perspective. How so? Well, I've been an RN for 19 years, but my most recent roles were not in acute care like a staff nurse in a hospital. Right before joining the team here, I was working as a nurse at a skilled nursing facility and also had a role working in a student health clinic at a small local college. Okay. My perspective was a bit skewed to both ends of the age spectrum, as you can imagine, with college students and the elderly. Fortunately, most of the college students were healthy and we were able to focus on teaching good health habits, educating them about things like nutrition, preventing infection, safe sex, things like that. Mm -hmm. There were certainly kids who needed acute care, and we triaged them and got them the care they needed. Right. And, And at the skilled nursing facility? Well, there I worked night shifts, so most shifts were pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the comings and goings for tests, doctor's appointments, or family visiting were done during the day shift. So my colleagues on the day shift, you know, had to contend with a lot of the air traffic controlling of the residents' needs. Um, But looking back now, I'd say I was blissfully naive of just (laughs) how difficult it is for patients and or their family members make it through our healthcare system. 
Yeah, that's a blissfully naive. That's a good one. How long <laughs> uh, ago was it that you worked in a hospital? Uh, May of 2011, so uh, 10 years ago, and a lot has changed, it would appear. Well, I, don't kid yourself, kid. <laughs> I started uh, Guardian <laughs> Nurses in 2003 because even back then, I thought navigating the world uh, of an acute hospitalization or even a new diagnosis like cancer was overwhelming. So folks, you know, folks don't know where to go. They don't know what to ask or who to see. They're sick or someone they love is sick. They're afraid. They don't even know where to start. So whether it's 2003 or 2011 or even 2021, I am happy to go on record as saying it is not getting easier. <laughs> yes, I second that. Uh, my work here has certainly been an eye-opener for sure, yeah. but I am really enjoying it. It's such a unique role, and it allows me to advocate for my patients, but also empower them so that in the future, they are better prepared, and maybe, just maybe... <laughs> They won't even need me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because there are plenty of other patients who will need you. Trust me. Um, so Janine, tell us about your story, if you will. Sure. So my role on the health and welfare fund that I support is as the complex care nurse. I have a partner who is what we call the acute care nurse. Mm -hmm. Her responsibilities are to support patients who have been hospitalized or who have maybe had a test result come back with some bad news. Mm -hmm. um, and then my responsibilities are typically focused more on patients who have already had an acute episode, mm -hmm. like that hospitalization I mentioned, and who may need more support because they may have diabetes or heart failure. Okay. And in this story, I met my patient because he had diabetes and his A1C was 13.6. Wow, that is not so good. Um, tell our listeners, if you would, what an <laughs> A1C is uh, and explain why a 13.6 value might be of some concern for you. Sure. So. I don't want to get too technical, but an A1C test is sometimes called the hemoglobin A1C or an HbA1C test. Hemoglobin is the part of a red blood cell that carries oxygen to other cells. Glucose attaches to or binds with hemoglobin in your blood cells, and the A1C test is based on this attachment of the glucose to hemoglobin. Okay. The higher the glucose level in your bloodstream, the more glucose will attach to the hemoglobin. Okay. So the A1C test is considered the gold standard for managing a patient with diabetes because it reflects your average blood glucose levels over the past three months. So the higher the percentage, the higher your blood glucose levels have been. A normal A1C level is below 5.7%. So having a value of 13.6 is very concerning to me when I see that because it equates to 
about an average daily blood sugar of around 326, wow. which is very high. Wow. Yes, it is very high. Mm-hmm. That's uh, boy. Yeah. Uh, and, and you reached out to this patient because you wanted to offer your help? Yes, absolutely. So during my initial outreach in late December, we discussed his diabetes and he did express an interest in obtaining a Dexcom, which is a, um, a continuous glucose monitoring device. Mm-hmm. So I was working on helping him get that. And during one of our follow-up calls, the patient shared with me that he'd been experiencing a cough that just wouldn't go away for the past few weeks. He had finally called his cardiologist who sent him home with a monitor for three days to watch his heart. Mm -hmm. And the patient then went in for an echocardiogram, which showed a decreased output or ejection fraction of his heart. So he was then scheduled for a cardiac catheterization to rule out a blockage. And during that hospitalization, the patient was transferred to another facility for a higher level of care. Wow, that sounds like he had uh, some pretty pretty serious health issues going on when you met him. Yes, he, he certainly did. He was actually transferred to a tertiary care hospital by the original hospital because he needed more advanced care and it was care they just couldn't provide at the first hospital. For what? What was the? Oh, um, pulmonary hypertension and severe advanced heart failure. His um, clinical condition, unfortunately, was severely compromised, and he was told that he would need an LBAD. But first, he had to be cleared medically by endocrine for his diabetes and by the cardiologist managing his heart failure. So uh, explain for our listeners what an LVAD is. Sure. So an LVAD, um, L-V-A-D, stands for a left ventricular assist device. It's An LVAD is a pump that we use for patients who have reached end-stage heart failure, like my patient had. The LVAD is surgically implanted. It's a battery-operated mechanical pump, which then helps the left ventricle, which is the main pumping chamber of the heart, it helps that ventricle pump blood to the rest of the body. If the patient is an appropriate candidate for a heart transplant, the LVAD can be used as the patient waits for a heart, or in other cases, it can be used as long-term treatment. It's, It's actually pretty amazing. No, I, I, it is. I, I remember uh, I had a patient many years ago who had an LVAD, and I learned then that only about 2% of the 250,000 people with heart failure who need a heart transplant get one. And, and at any given time, there may be about 3,000 people in the U.S. waiting for heart transplants. So unfortunately, there are not enough hearts for every person in need Uh, And the Department of Health and Human Services reports that the median wait time for a heart transplant is just shy of a year. Some people don't live long enough while waiting for a transplant, and some are too sick to make it onto the transplant list at all. And I think that's why I think LVADs are uh, surely a welcome invention 
Um, so I'm sorry, uh, continue. I want to get that in there. Oh, yes, no problem. Well, since this is what I do, I went with him to his first appointment with the heart failure team. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, first we met with a pharmacist who came in, went over all of his medications. Uh, he then had an exam with a cardiologist. And next up, he met with uh, the VAD nurse and a social worker. And it was intended to be a very long appointment. Well, why? I mean, this this patient uh, was compromised, so I can't imagine a long, drawn-out appointment would be good for him. No, but he really needed to understand what to expect during his hospitalization and post-discharge care. Okay. So what happened at the uh, original appointment? Well, during the appointment, and remember, I'm with him as he's meeting with everyone, and the patient was very happy to have me interjecting questions, um, but I always make it a habit to ask my patients before the appointment if it's okay that I ask questions, because yeah. after all, it is his appointment, right. so I don't want to interrupt. But in this case, you know, he said, yeah, go for it. So, you know, I, one of the questions I asked the VAD nurses was, you know, should he have a copy of his advanced directive with him when he goes into the hospital? And, and what prompted you to ask that question? Had it, had it been a topic of conversation with you and him before? Um, no, and I, I don't know. Maybe it was a divine intervention and a little <laughs> luck all rolled into one, but the VAD nurse responded, you know, sure, better to have the advanced directive on the chart. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I then turned to my patient and asked him if he had an advanced directive. <laughs> and a designated person to make medical decisions if he were not able to. So furthermore, I then asked him, you know, if he did, you know, does this person understand his wishes? Right. Wow. Yeah, that does sound a little like divine intervention. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder what your nursey sensors were telling you. I, I don't know, but I, I, I know I've been in those situations before where something will just pop into my head and I just let it come out. <laughs> Atta girl. Great to happen during a doctor's <laughs> visit. Not so great uh, if you're in the library. <laughs> no, no, funny, but seriously, I did want to make sure that we at least talked about it at that meeting, right. you know, because after all, as I mentioned earlier, the goal of that long day was for him to come away with a good understanding of what to expect during his hospitalization and post-discharge with his care. Right. I mean, it would have been a mistake not to talk about whether he had an advanced directive. Right. And that's part of my job as his nurse advocate, to make sure he's getting everything he needs to move forward successfully. Yeah, no, kudos to you, Janine. Did, did he have an advanced directive? So the good news is yes, he did already have one in place. Um, due to his extensive history and past hospitalizations, he did understand the importance of this. And he had also already designated his sister as his point person. Wow. Good for him for looking downfield, especially given his severe heart failure. I mean, courageous of him too, and, and very pragmatic uh, to have completed them. Um, how did your patient react mm -hmm. when you raised the question uh, during the office visit? So it's funny, 
I think he was a little uncomfortable. I, you know, I mean, he had what he needed. He'd done the right thing to already put into place. And here was an opportunity to use it. And I, I got the sense he was uncomfortable just, mm-hmm. you know, because in his mind, he was thinking like, well, this is just a normal surgery. He would, he was going to be in and out with no trouble at all. Yeah, but right, how many times, uh, you've, I'm sure you've seen it plenty of times too, the normal becomes extraordinary and suddenly there's a lot going on. Yes, exactly. So I, I stress to my patient that he needs to understand that, you know, the clinical team anticipates everything going smoothly and right. going as expected, but he really had to be prepared for the unexpected. And if he were unable to make decisions, at least there's a plan in place. Yeah, yeah perfect. It's kind of like uh, disaster preparedness training. Yes, exactly. And he had the surgery and, you know, the unexpected happened. The clinical team had difficulty extubating him, which is, you know, removing the breathing tube that was giving him oxygen during the surgery. And uh, the patient needed to have a tracheostomy so that he could breathe. Wow. Why uh, the difficulty getting him off the ventilator? Well, post-op, his recovery was complicated by some right ventricular dysfunction along with aspiration pneumonia, which resulted in a prolonged intubation. Wow. Wow. That, yeah, that's a lot going on. Um, how did it work out <laughs> in the hospital when he, when he wasn't able to come off the ventilator? Well, after some time, when it was determined that he would require a tracheostomy, which would allow for the breathing tube to be removed from his mouth to make it a little easier to slowly begin weaning him off the ventilator. So while the doctors were deciding to do this procedure, thankfully, my patient was awake and he was able to understand everything the doctors were saying to him. So he was able to agree to have the trach plate. Okay. However, if he were not awake or unable to understand or make that decision for himself, right. it would have then fallen onto his sister to either consent or refuse that treatment plan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so your patient had an advanced directive and, and we know uh, that an advanced directive is a legal form that describes the kinds of medical care you want to receive if something happens to you and you can't speak for yourself. So it tells your family and your doctor what to do if you're badly hurt or have a serious illness that keeps you from saying what you want. Uh, and there are two main types, as I mentioned uh, in the intro, a living will and a medical power of attorney for health care. Um, which one was used mm-hmm. in your patient's case? The medical power of attorney. Okay. Uh, can, you explain, uh, can you explain this type of uh, advanced directive? Yes. So a medical power of attorney lets you name a person to make treatment deci- decisions for you when you can't speak for yourself. Um, this person is also called a healthcare agent or a healthcare proxy. Mm-hmm. Some states may limit what your healthcare agent can decide for you. And in a few states, he or she can speak for you right away mm-hmm. and at any time that you don't want to make the choices for yourself. Wow. 
he or she can also use your living will and what he or she knows about you to help guide your care. Mm -hmm. So it's important when you're choosing your healthcare agent, you know, select a person you trust to make medical decisions for you. In my patient's case, it was his sister. It's also important to know that as long as you can still make your own decisions, your advanced directive won't be used. You can change or cancel it at any time. And your healthcare agent will only make choices for you if you can't or don't want to decide for yourself. Yeah, that Janine, that's an important distinction. I think no one wants to feel locked in to a decision. And, and who knows, right? You may want to change who that person is, uh, as in the case maybe of a divorce or perhaps uh, of a death, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, can you explain the other type of advanced directive? Yes, it's called a living will. And a living will makes clear the kinds of medical care you want to receive if you get seriously hurt or ill or can't make your own decisions. It describes your choices for care and how you want them carried out if you're near the end of your life or are in the hospital with a serious illness. Um, If you get better and can speak for yourself again, you can stop or say no to treatment at any time if you have a living will, you know, your choices will be honored. And um, a living will is also called a treatment directive. Yeah. Janine, thank you for explaining those. Mm -hmm. Um, So what kind of things should our listeners start thinking about if they wanted to create their own advanced directive? Well, there are plenty of online resources for people to research, but I recommend that people consider some of these, one of these five items, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so them being, do you want to receive cardiopulmonary resuscitation or CPR if your heart stops? Do you want to be on a machine that pumps oxygen into your lungs through a tube if you can't breathe on your own? Mm -hmm. Do you want to be on a machine that cleans your blood if your kidneys stop working? Do you want to be fed or get fluid through a tube if you can't eat or drink? And do you want to take medicines to treat serious infections? Yeah, that's, um, those are, those are five good, good uh, questions. Uh, Janine, were you involved with your patient's decision-making when it came to his advanced directive? No, I, I was not. He had already set them up prior to my coming on to support him. Wow. He, he was way ahead of most of us and most of our patients. <laughs> yeah, I'll say I, I, I give him a lot of kudos for her, for his uh, preparedness. I yeah. mean, he, he had some serious diagnoses and, you know, very well knew that he may have some instances where he might need someone to make decisions for him. Yeah, no, I, I, kudos, right? Kudos to him. So <laughs> Jenny, given, given the story, mm-hmm. Um, and I think this might be challenging to answer, but let's give it a shot. Mm-hmm. What one piece of advice would you offer uh, to our listeners? Uh, well, um, so Betty, I always tell a lot of my patients, like I always say, hey, it's always better to be proactive rather than reactive with our health. Yeah. No one can predict when unexpected medical situations will occur. 
So having an advanced directive in place is really important. It can be updated or changed at any time. Right. You should discuss this with your family doctor and with whomever you are going to designate as your proxy. You should review your wishes yearly and make changes whenever your health or family status changes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people always seem to think discussing their health is a taboo topic because it's their health and not anyone else's concern. But, right. you know, being open and honest about things can help avoid disagreements between family members or making someone question decisions that they may have to make on your behalf. Um, So, you know, also keep in mind, and this is important, unfortunately, there is no guarantee that your directive will follow you in your medical record, especially if you are transferred from one facility to another, as in the case of my patient. So make sure that you and your proxy always have a copy and present it to the healthcare team. Well, yeah, that, that is uh, well, that's not just one thing, but okay. <laughs> a lot Sorry. going on, a lot of advice. <laughs> I do that. No, that's great. That's great. That's what makes you, you. Um, right. Good story. And, and a really important lesson, I think. And mostly, you know, to know that you can change it and it's not written in stone. Uh, I think that's yeah. an important one because, you know, people, uh, lives change, people make different decisions. So thank you. Um, all right. So you're not done yet. Uh, this is our okay. fun question for our guests. And you may have heard this on previous podcasts, but it has been over hmm. one year since the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic changed our world. Please answer this sentence. When the world fully opens up again, I will. Okay. So I will. So I have heard this question on previous podcasts because <laughs> okay. you know I love my podcast. Yes. So I actually prepared with this by first I asked my daughters this question. And okay. one of them immediately gave me an answer of, I'm going to a 76ers game. Oh. The, yeah. A big basketball fan. Okay. <laughs> the other one wasn't sure and couldn't give me an immediate answer, but I am sure that she is looking forward to getting back to all of her normal activities. But as for me, yeah, what I would really enjoy doing is driving out to state college with my husband and my yeah. daughters to go visit my son who lives out there. Okay. He has, he has a band and due to COVID and the bars shutting down, a lot of his gigs got canceled. So oh. it did help them with writing their music and recording a lot, but, I would absolutely love to go out and see him perform live again. Oh, that's great. That's great. And your, and your daughter will still bug you about the Sixers game. Maybe you can go to a Sixers she playoff will. She game will. If, you're, if they're lucky <laughs> enough to make it into the playoffs. I know. She would love that. That'd be great. <laughs> um, Janine, thank you uh, so much for joining me today and, and for sharing the story. I think it's an important lesson for us all. Uh, and I trust that our listeners will benefit right from hearing your story today. It is never too late, as you said, or too early to create your own advanced directive. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Betty. I enjoyed it too. If you have any questions that you would like us to address in a future episode, please email us at podcast at guardiannurses.com. That email again is podcast at guardiannurses.com. 
we would love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us this week. You can find the Lighting Your Way podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, YouTube, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. You can learn all about Guardian Nurses Healthcare Advocates on our website, guardiannurses.com. So until next time, find some joy in your life, pet all the good doggies and kitties, and remember to tell your people that you love them. Take care.